tune hook now Things just got worse I'm drunk again I swear this crescent Is just a curse well, I got here By killing off all my friends I think I figured out my life begins when fun ends I got my wings I'm free to go as I please yeah I got my wings now nothing really pleases me till everything falls apart then I get to try to put it back together yeah fall apart and you count on that count on This was a big treat for me, man. So I, you know, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Well, I mean, you had the t-shirt. What, what am I going to do? <laughs> Let me tell you that t-shirt. I am not going to, I'm not going to lie to you. Eight being an eighties metal fan, like, uh, yeah. and then into the nineties, you know, getting into, you know, e even, you know, some of the, like when I was in high school, like some of the early nineties metal, and then yeah, yeah. I got into the dead and then fish, you know, like into the yeah. mid nineties, yeah. all the shirts I have are gone except for that freaking dog's eye view shirt. That's crazy. <laughs> for some reason that shirt meant more to me. And the only thing I can think of is like, when I first heard you guys, uh, you know, or your music, you know, uh, with uh, Happy Nowhere, is that it really struck a chord with me at the time, and it was, and it was like one of those things where I'm sure you've experienced this too, is that it was, though it was for some reason the right place, right time. It was the music I needed to hear in my life at that moment, and yeah, that album played a huge part of like my soundtrack, you know, so. I was pumped because I saw you guys in Atlanta with uh, the Wallflowers opening. Oh, and sure. Yeah, yeah. As we're at a place called Variety Playhouse. And okay, yep. that show, like a good friend of mine told me one time, he said, you know, you've seen a great show when decades later you can remember details of it. And oh, wow. I still remember to this day, like what you opened with and what you closed with. Oh well, what did we what did we open with and close with? You opened up with Shine. Okay, yeah, one of those nights. Okay, and then you closed the show with Speed of Silence. Yeah, that's funny. That's funny. The uh, Speed of Silence was, in fact, probably in Atlanta was where the conflict really started to heat up. We uh, we'd hired a drummer who had played in a band with the bass player and the guitar player, mm -hmm. and. Um, and and session drummer in the UK, great drummer. Uh, but some of the songs just felt totally wrong. And uh, and at one point on Speed of Silence, I, I, I turned to him and was like, that's not the groove on the record. That's not the groove. And he was like, I don't like the groove on the record. I was like, I don't care. Like It's not your freaking song, dude. <laughs> yeah. And... And then the next night, whatever, whatever night we had that conflict, the next night I started playing it at soundcheck to, to see if we could get it better. And it felt great. 
And I turned around and it was, um, I think, I guess I was in tour with Cracker at the time. It was Cracker's roadie playing drums. <laughs> it felt great. I was like, I was like, well, I guess I have to fire the other guy. Um, so uh, that's funny. That's, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a funny thing uh, about music catching you in a place and time in your life, right? Because there are, there are certain, and I'm, I imagine this has changed in some ways with the internet and with streaming and all that, and maybe in, in most ways. You know, but back then there, you know, there were certain artists like when, when I had, you know, probably early college when I had those first couple of records that just, just, you know, floored me. Um, it was, uh, you know, I would have thought those bands like, you know, there's a, a band, obscure Scottish band called Aztec Camera. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, it, I would have been shocked to find out they weren't playing like Madison Square Garden. Like in my world, they were just, the songs were great. They were amazing. They were huge, right? And outside of my world, I was like, no one's ever heard of them, right? And there's a record that I still know. Uh, There's, we have a long history, but uh, there's a band called Delamitri. Yes, I love Uh, Delamitri. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, if, uh, you know, you can cut any of this out that you want if it's not interesting, but so I was obsessed with the first telemetry record, which is on, on Chrysalis and very Scottish folk pop. Like, uh, it's very different from Waking Hours, which was their first big U.S. record. Mm-hmm. So I was obsessed in college and so much so that I wrote to their manager. Their manager wrote me back. They were coming to the States to do a tour. Um, why don't I meet them in uh, Washington Square Park? So I was in New York, staying at my mom's house at the time. Uh, and I went in and met them and, and uh, said embarrassing fan things to Justin, who was, you know, all of like 22 <laughs> at the time. Um, but in my mind, you know, the, the, the mastermind of this unbelievable body of work. And then their entire tour got canceled because it turned out the guy who, the guy who was basically running a show to fund the whole tour mm-hmm. had just scammed everybody and told them that he'd sold tons of tickets and he hadn't sold any tickets. So there was no money. Um, so they wound up the, the entire band and their opening act and their, you know, one crew member wound up staying at my mom's house in Long Island for a week while they got back on their feet and tried to figure out how to go out on a tour. Um, and, and to me, it was like, that was, you know, it was a watershed moment in a lot of ways, but the, the biggest watershed of that was realizing, you know, when you meet someone peripherally, right, or briefly, um, they're still, you know, if they're famous or they're an icon to you or whatever they are, they, they retain that, right? But if they stay at your house and they're, you know, you're shitting in the same bathroom you are and they're, they're out barbecuing burgers with you, like it all drops away, right? Yeah, it all, it all drops away. And then you're, then, you know, like, and this seems naive in retrospect, but I was like, oh, you can be, you can be a musician or a songwriter if you're just an actual person, right? It, it, you know, my impression was that like you were just born into it and a natural, like, you know, like in, in my life, you know, like John Bon Jovi had always been John Bon Jovi. 
And like, he's another, you know, he's in another plane, right? You're never going to hang out with him. And then to have this sort of, you know, uh, experience where, where you go, Oh, this, this guy's just a regular dude. He's fine. He's, he's, he's struggling. He's a human being like anyone else. Um, it was great, but it, but it is a weird thing. It's like, it, you know, I, I'm, I'm not actually, it, it thrills me to hear that, you know, that, that, that show and that record were like that for you because it's sort of, you know, having a pop hit is, is ephemeral and weird and dizzying mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and then when it's not followed up by like a, you know, when, when you don't keep rising through the ranks and, and becoming, a, you know, it's weird, right? And, and what you never get or, or rarely get is a sense that like, you know, for that, I'm not saying it was this effect, uh, affecting to you, but mm -hmm. for that one person who's in their room who just gets it and needs to hear it, like it's everything, right? Oh. And it has nothing to do with how many times it played or how many records you sell. It's like, you know, it's like that old thing about, you know, the Velvet Underground or something. It's like they never, they didn't sell any records, but everybody who bought one started a band. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so it's nice to hear that, you know, uh, that that was happening, at least in one case. We have one proven case where the record meant a lot to somebody <laughs> but you know it was so interesting because like one of the things I, I i like to iterate to people especially someone like you is that a lot of young people's you know formative years occur in their teens you know what i mean like where they're kind of like you know my my formative years as a person even though that was in my teens but it happened like around like 95 was because sure. you know i'd been playing in heavy metal bands and i was like that was my thing but i always grew up with a very open mind and a very large palette of you know mm -hmm. I, I mean to give you an example is that you know i had a heavy metal band who was playing a club one night we were going on at uh, 11 o'clock yeah, I went and saw Sarah McLaughlin across town, and then after sure. the show, like booked ass across the town to make my metal game. You know, and like, sure. and my band was like, "Where the fuck have you been?" And I was like, "I was at the Sarah McLaughlin yeah. show," and they were like, right. <laughs> "I was like, dude, it was you know," but you know, you hit this point where you, you not only are you at a personal crossroads, but you're. Yeah. You know, I've I've been a musician since I was twelve, so sure. you know that that artistic and creative crossroad was someplace I was at, and you yeah. know that kind of stereotypical, almost kind of thing. You know, I discovered the Grateful Dead in like ninety five. Sure, changed sure, my sure. life forever because yeah. it was yeah. like music can be so heavy without being. Right voluminous and loud right and right 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 you know and i was thinking to myself man like you know you know box of rain is every bit as intense sure. as heavy as like raining blood by slayer you know what i mean because it's sure, sure. just sonically it's different but yeah, yeah but it hits you in a certain way and so at sure. that time i was absorbing music you know like especially music yeah, yeah. that was coming out at that time not sure. everything, but certain things would speak right. to me, you know, like like Counting Crows. That was a, you know, August yeah. and everything after it was an album I 
I listened to it so much. I think my CD player burned a hole in the CD. I had to buy another one or something. Yeah, I mean, I, I you know, it's obviously, you know, I have some connection with those guys from from early career. But, you know, I remember a guy was playing drums for me when I was in New York trying to get gigs and trying to get signed and whatever. Um, worked He worked in distribution or something for Geffen Records. And, you know, maybe a month before... Uh, the Crows record came out or the single came out. He gave me the cassette of, uh, of, of August and everything after. It was one of those records. I don't, I don't know if you've experienced this. I think a lot of people have. It's one of those records I heard the first time. I was like, oh, okay. But I listened again and I was like, oh. And by like the third time I was like uh, obsessed with how good the record was. <laughs> exactly. Right. Like all of a sudden. Yeah. All of a sudden it was like, I've been hearing this my whole life. This is amazing. And, you know, um, and it's just where I was in my life. Right. And I mean, that's a great record. There's no, there's no way around the songwriting and the playing and the, you know, rhythm section on that record. Um, but it was, it, it was an interesting, yeah. So I, I get you on that, on that particular record. It was, uh, it was pretty, especially in the time it came out, right. We're just post Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Right. So, like, sonically, it's just taking, you know, it's like, who's this guy trying to be Van Morrison? What what the hell is happening? And that was the thing, was that it became this kind of, because, you know, like, especially, you know, going into, you know, you know, like my senior year in high school, you know, my senior year in high school in 92 was when, you know, Nirvana started popping in and then, you know, Alice right. in Chains, Soundgarden, and, yep. you know, yep. Pearl Jam. And I... And even looking back, the bands that I liked from that era the most, you know, being like Alice in Chains and Pearl Jam and Sound, mm-hmm. I was like, okay, sure. those were the ones that were most musically similar to what I was already taking in. But there was something about those songs that were like, right. you know, yeah, sorry, but, you know, it wasn't Cherry Pie, you know, or whatever right, I was right, playing. Right, you know? right. And right. in 94. 95 when i hit that kind of crossroads in my life like it wasn't even just like a life crossroad as much as it was like a like a like an artistic and a musical crossroad because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden the music that once spoke to me was no longer speaking to me so like when that happens you go you you know there's always this concept of being seekers and finders you know and i've always Mm -hmm. been a seeker you know and it when i was started seeking out that that something new i didn't even know where to start you know but you know all of a sudden you know the grateful dead things started to get good again which was like with the counting crows record and with the wallflowers putting out an album and then you got and and then you know dog's eye view that for some reason became my music i was listening to like the dead and fish and blues traveler and then dog's eye view and then wallflowers (laughs) and so that was my musical world and so how old how old were you at that point? So that was in 95 or so, 96 yeah. when I heard uh, you guys. So that would have been so it would have been about 22, 21. Okay. Right. 21 or 22. Yeah. The the first two Dogs I View records are one of the very few records from that era that I still listen to hmm. on a regular basis. And it was for some reason you're to blame for these songs implanting themselves in me and giving me this like sense of like happiness and like 
paying sure. attention to lyrics and paying attention to things and like personally taking those songs in and they became right. a huge part of my life and my soundtrack. Right. That's a huge compliment. Thanks. They, they're not dated. That's the thing. I mean, I have no perspective on them, right? Because I, I made them, I mean, you know, 20, 26, 27 year old me who made that record. I, I don't know that. I don't even know who that guy is anymore. Um, I, I think he might've been a little rough to be around sometimes, but, um, <clears throat> but I just, you know, you can never hear, you, you know, this is a musician. You can never hear your own creation in the same way that you can hear something else where you're surprised by anything, right? You've made it, you've labored through it. You know, the parts, you know, how the, how the, you know, how it's made. Right. Um, and and so you you're never going to hear it in the same way other people hear it um even if you trick yourself i'm not going to listen for two weeks and then i'm going to put on the car while i'm driving and 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 see and catch myself by surprise but it's you know it, it's really hard um so i i have no perspective on how those albums have made i know personally for me that I feel like the first record was more true to what I was trying to do. And actually my solo record, the Peter Stewart record, which came out propeller, um, that felt like a continuation of the first record to me in a lot of ways. A, a lot of what happened with Daisy was I was touring a ton with Dog's Eye View and I had, so I toured a lot. I did a huge tour with Tori Amos before mm -hmm. I was signed and then yeah. tours with the Crows where I was playing solo acoustic. Um, and I loved playing theaters, right? Playing where you could play quietly and people were going to listen mm -hmm. and you could play big and it'll go over. Um, but then all of a sudden when we were touring, we were playing, uh, clubs yeah. and audiences are loud. And if you get really singer songwriter and quiet, they talk over you. They get louder. Right? Which is so, so yeah, they get louder. Right. And, and. And if you get louder, they get even louder. Get even louder. So it's, a, it's a total dead end. Um, but it, I think that, you know, that, that made me get a Les Paul Jr. and, you know, a Bach camp and, and try to make noise to get people's attention. Mm -hmm. uh, and there are a couple good, I mean, there are a couple songs I really like on Daisy, but overall, I mean, <clears throat> overall, it's a complicated record for me. I don't, I don't, it doesn't feel like, the next step in the line. Um, and it's also, you know, my sort of biggest music industry regret, right, is that <clears throat> when I turned that record in, the head of the record company, the president of the record company said, you know, I, I, it's a great record. I really love the record. Um, I was like, oh, great, thanks. He said, but I'm not sure I hear a hit single. And I was like, okay, so what do you want me to do? And he said, you know, and, and and let me just sidebar by saying nobody heard a hit single on the first record either, right? <laughs> so it's not like you know, you know, you're not the oracle, right? And nor am I. Um, but, you know, he said, so here are your two choices. Either go back in the studio, write a couple more songs, take your time, try to get something uh, that's a hit, or let's release it as it is and we fully support you as an artist. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and who among us isn't going to take option two, right? Yeah, great. You're going to support me as an artist. Fine. Let's, let's go do it. 
But then literally the, it, it was a tee up. I, I mean, I wish in retrospect, he had just said, we're not putting it out, go write some more songs. Right. right. Um, but you know, literally two months into the record cycle, I mean, the, the record started with a, we sort of put it out to, to coincide with an uh, Asia Australia tour with the Crows mm-hmm. um, that they then canceled. So we had to scramble uh, to come up with tours. And, um, and yeah, you know, two months into it, he, he I said, you know, I, I really don't feel like there's support at the label. I don't feel like there's like a push. I know what it feels like to get pushed. This is not. Mm-hmm. And he said, yeah, yeah, I told you the record wasn't a hit. We supported you by putting it out. And that was that was the I was like, oh, you just made me fucking hang myself. Was oh, that the caveat there? <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, yeah. It's like, okay, I get it. You set me up to make the decision that then proved you right. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, I, I digress to music industry stuff. Um, I, I don't know where tomorrow always comes fits in uh, sonically. Like I, I, I like the. It, it reminds me sort of. Uh, I don't know if you remember when Chris Cornell did a record with, who did he do a record with? Shoot, I'm blanking on it. He did a record with like a, a, a really slick producer. Oh, like, yes. And producer. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, know what you, I, I don't remember the name of the record, but I know what you're talking about. It was really. But it was like a, it, yeah. yeah, it was, uh, you know, there were drum machines and it was. Right, right. It was very different. And, um, and nobody, Nobody liked that record at all, but it was it was a cool experiment, right? You know um, what? Though? Every artist should have a record like that, right? I mean, which is fine, you know, if if it doesn't also end your career, right? <laughs> right. If, it, if it ends your career, it's it's not as fine. No, it's not. Um, it's you know, and the thing just to double back to what you were talking about before. You know, that thing about having the sort of first formative period and the second formative period, right? That tracks with brain development and, and you sort of puberty uh, into awareness and then adolescence into adulthood. Um, but I think, you know, that seeking that you mentioned mm-hmm. is, you know, for me, it's seeking the feeling I had when I heard the last thing that really did it for me, right? I'm seeking the transcendence of, of, oh my God, I put on this thing and I didn't know what it was and what the fuck, right? Like, oh right. my God. And, and you know, I, I'm sure you've had the experience. I had many records come out by bands that like did that to me once. And then I listened to the next record and it was like, yeah, you didn't do it again, right? You didn't. And, and it's because I'm in a different place in my life or, or whatever it is, but it's, it's really about paying attention, staying in touch with, oh, this is, this makes me feel something now. And then in five years, oh, this doesn't make me feel anything anymore. What does make me feel something, right? What, what, you know, and that's the seeking, right? It's like getting your, tasting enough things so that your palate gets, you know, a kick at some point. There are some artists and some bands that I love, you know, I love. Yeah, but now when you start to go through their catalog, not every one of their albums is like, oh man, that's that's the one, you know? Right. Like, right. like some bands have, you know, I, I mean, e- even with like Pink Floyd, like I'm a huge Floyd fan, 
Sure. Now, did everything they do blow me away? To an extent, yes. But how many mm. of their albums actually was one that actually like put my ass in place and made me just right. be like, wow. Right. You know, right. and like those are the albums and, and moments that that like for me as a person, I cherish because and I'm sure this is the same way with you, because, you know, we were talking before about like the, the Delamitri connection and all that yeah, stuff yeah. with you is that I, I I tend to get emotionally invested in sure. artists or some music, some albums, sure. you know? And there's this big difference, though, that at my age now, there's a big difference between an album still doing it for you and an album mm. you're, like, waxing nostalgic on. I mean, it's the equivalent of building up a tolerance if you have a drug habit, right? It's sort of like, you know, that used to work for me. Now it doesn't work for me. Um, and in, and more, you know, the difference is that, you know, sort of if it's heroin, right, a little bit worked for me amazingly well. Now I need more and more and more and more. Um, you know, whereas with with music, I think it's more that used to work for me. It doesn't. I need to find some new stuff that works for me. Yeah. Let me ask you this, because I, I don't know that I have an answer to this. So... Uh, What's the, when's the last time you were blown away by something or had that same or a similar kind of transcendent feeling about new music? About new music? Yeah, about something that you hadn't, that you hadn't heard before. So there is this uh, Swedish band out of, uh, mm. the, uh, they're kind of like a, like a psychedelic kind of like occult rock band, you know? Okay. And of course, when people hear those, you automatically think like heavy or whatever. It's very seventies rooted in like that early Fleetwood mm -hmm. Mac kind of Peter mm -hmm. Green era. Sure. But they put out an album called uh, Tales to be Told. And they're a new mm -hmm. band. I mean, they're young, you know, I mean, they're young. Right. I mean, they're probably in their like late twenties or so. Mm hmm but something about that album and the songs and the lyrics, yeah. like it put me down, like made right. me like sit and listen to it and kind of absorb that, you know? And that, that's a, to me, that is like the ultimate high is when mm, sure, a new sure. band can give you the same feeling that sure. the bands you love. Well, I think there's a real, you know, there's a real possibility that, the way we develop as people and the way we age, um, that we're just less open to new things, right? Mm -hmm. We're just less likely uh, to hear new things. I know for me, um, you know, I, I run pretty much every day and I listen to music when I run maybe one time out of 50 uh, because the other 49 times I'm listening to podcasts. Right. I'm just listening right. to people right. talk in my ear mm -hmm. and, and, and I get a lot from them. Right. And maybe not that same transcendence, but I get information and I get awareness and I, I feel like I'm learning something. Um, and music, you know, I, I, it's harder for me to find music that isn't in that nostalgic category. Right. But, but is in the category of like, wow, this just came out and it's crushing me. I mean, and weirdly and not, uh, you know, uh, any any cooler cred I have is 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 maybe questionable, uh, but you know the 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 last thing that really 
got me was Folklore by, by Taylor Swift. That is a great record. It's, it's an unbelievably great record. And I don't know if you saw the Longview sessions or Long Pond sessions or whatever. And, but I was, I mean, I really came around to like, she in that casual setting playing the songs, she never wavered on a note. She never missed a note. She never missed a, a sort of, uh, she never felt disconnected and just performing the songs. Like it was a, and those songs, like I, you know, I, I, I'd go to bat for the, uh, the last great American dynasty being one of the best songs in the last 10 years. Right. It's great song. perfectly written. It's a great song. Um, you know, so, right. So we still have the ability to have that like transcendent thing. Mm -hmm. It's just harder to find. And I think there's more competition, right? It, like when, when you and I were growing up, you had to sort of go all in and make a bet on a Pink Floyd record, right? You, yeah, or absolutely. Go all in, right? you, had to, you had to commit to like, I'm going to try to like this thing. Um, and now you don't, right? Now you listen to a song and another song and a playlist and out of sequence. And mm -hmm. there's just way more coming at you, right? I mean, and, and you don't have the patience. Like, I remember one of the first records that in, in my sort of the beginning of my second phase of, yeah. of awareness. Your um, dog's eye view album, basically. No, yeah, yeah. My own records. I, I thought my I own record. Um, the, 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 the record that, yeah, yeah, my version of that. Um, the record that started that process was my sister came home from college and she had this weird record called Imperial Bedroom by Elvis Costello. And, <laughs> and I just remember putting it on and thinking, this is fucking terrible. Right. But then I put it on again, side one again. And I was like, this is kind of bad. I don't, I'm not sure I like this. And then I listened again and I was like, wait a second. I sort of understand the logic of this. I sort of, you know, in that whole first, like, uh, beyond belief, like, history repeats the same conceits, that, that whole thing. Right, yeah. Like, once I got into it and knew it, I, I, I took ownership over it and loved it, right? And then that brought me to the Smiths, which was, like, you know, for every, for every mopey, lonely, miserable uh, teenager of that era, it's like, oh, my God, someone's as unhappy as I am. This is amazing. It's okay to cry. <laughs> right? It's okay to be so sad. So, uh, yeah, but, it, it, you know, I think it's harder, like, to, to get those repeats in and to, to hear stuff. And it's harder to hear stuff new. And, it's, look, my other theory, it's going to be very unpopular, is I also think it's why people start making shittier and shittier records when they get older. Oh, absolutely. I, like, like the Ro Rolling Stones, right? At some point, there was this vitality, and they were breaking the rules and creating things. And then at some point, they were trying to get on the radio and make their tours, uh, you know, more crowded. Right, right. And 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 the songwriting isn't there, and the performances aren't there, and sonically, it's not there. And and that happens to a lot. I mean, it's few and far between. Like, I think Jeff Tweedy has gotten better as he's gotten older. Right, yeah, I and, agree, and, and and more interesting. And I think, you know, uh, maybe Radio Hand over a bunch of records, but I don't know about now. Mm -hmm. I have sort of lost track with what they're doing. But, but generally, you know, people write their make their best art younger for music, yeah. right? Um, 
And I think part of it is that, you know, when you're 23, you have a certain arrogance and a certain belief in yourself and, and you haven't yet been sort of raked over the coals of life, right? So, so you don't go like, I can do this, but it's probably not ever going to work. You go like, yeah, there's, there should be no reason I can't be on MTV. Let's do this. I, of course you should look at me, right? Right, yeah. Um, of course I'll live in a van for three months, man. I'm young. I can do that. Right. Yeah, of course. I get in a van and, get, you know, the first tour, proper tour I ever did was, you know, was literally, I, I opened for this Irish band, The Fat Lady Sings, who two, two of the guys in it wound up in my band later. Mm -hmm. But I, I opened for them in New York. And then the, they played their set. And during their set, they had no guitar tech with them, no one with them. And during their set, it took like 10 minutes between every song. And they were playing a show at like the Beacon Theater the next night opening for someone. Wow. And I just went to them and I said, you guys can't do that tomorrow. You can't. So I'm going to be your roadie. I'm going to be your guitar tech. Let me come do that. And then I did that. And the next day there was a conversation that said, that was really helpful. Will you come on the tour with us? And as I did with County Crows, I went, aha, yes. But also I have to open the shows, right? Yeah, I'm, I'll happily be your guitar tech, but, but also I get to play. That's my payment. Yeah. Um, and that tour was, I mean, someday I'll try to write about it, but it was such an epic clusterfuck. Um, it was... You know, it started off with like a tour manager who was being anti-Semitic on the first drive. So we had to call, we had to book a flight home for him and, and then wake him up at like six in the morning and tell him there was a cab outside for him to get rid of him. And then our, and then, <clears throat> and then we went to Boston and we were staying, you know, these guys are Irish. So we stayed at like some, this Irish, you know, these Irish people's house, mm -hmm. but it turned out they're fucking IRA gun runners, right? So it was like, like at some point, at some point, Derman lifted up the bed and there were fucking AK-47s, all this shit. It was like, what the fuck? Where are we? And then like a day later, our sound guy, there's a, there's a theater in, in Boston. I think it's called the Paradise. That has a, the soundboard is, is like, you have to like step up onto it. It's like, three feet above it's like on a platform kind of yeah Yeah, it's on yeah. a platform and he stepped off the back of it and shattered his leg and we had to send him home i mean it was it was and i loved it right i i slept in the van i slept on people's floors uh -huh. I, we you know it, all of it it and I, and it was like yeah this is great right whereas i'm the sort of person it's like if i don't like something i'm out right so like you know, that to, to me, part of the witness test artistically is sort of when you get kicked in the face a bunch of times, do you still want to do it? Oh, right? and the, yeah. The, the best advice, like my aunt happened to have been in the music business um, and, and she's much older at this time, about to retire. And, and I went and told her, I was like, I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to, you know, I'm out of college. I'm going to really make a shot at that. And she said, okay. I'll give you the piece of advice I always give to people. And said, okay. Um, and she said, um, if you can think of anything else that you would like to do, if you can picture anything else that you would like to do, you should do that. If you can't, 
and you have to do this, you should do this. Yeah. But if you, you know, if it's like, well, I, I could work in finance, right? Then, then you're not gonna, you're not gonna have the stomach for the indignities that get thrown at you. You know, that's, and that's so interesting too, because as you were talking, like I was remembering seeing you guys live uh, here in Atlanta at Variety yeah. with the yeah. Wallflowers. And it was kind of a weird dynamic for me to, because up until like listening to you guys, you were the only person that was like, that I was a huge fan of that was like my age. And so the, so, so there was this kind of like a slight bitterness for me and um, jealousy, I guess. Sure. But then when I went and saw you live, that dynamic to me is actually what made me, it almost kind of fueled me, if that makes sure. sense. You know? Right, right. And, right. you know, even though I never achieved an MTV video or a single or a world tour or whatever, I, I still play music. I still write music. Right. I'm about to put out right. an album, you know, that I've been working on for two years. And, right. you know, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, fluff you here or anything, but, you know, you were one of those artists that I still think of to this day and go, man, like he did it, you know? Right. Like he, he made this great music that still speaks to me to this day. Okay. Right. I've still got it in me to do it. Let's do this. Right. You know? Right. I mean, there's a, there's a great sort of democratization, right. Uh, you know, it, it's what was great about punk, mm -hmm. um, you know, th but there's a, there's an amazing power in going, well, if this, if this schlub can do it, then I can certainly do it. Right. And, and there's no, you know, <clears throat> I mean, the thing that you really, that a lot of artists don't want to admit to, uh, that I think you have to admit to if you're going to stay sane is, yeah, it takes a lot of luck. Mm -hmm. It takes a lot of accidents. It takes a lot of uh, good fortune. Network. It doesn't, you know, no, I, I, I'm sure you know, like I, I know people who are 10 times the musician that I was who never got out of their basement because they couldn't put it together or they couldn't go out and play or they couldn't, they, you know, they just didn't have, and, and I, you know, what I lacked in sort of musical prodigy, I made up for, and I'm going to fucking outwork everybody, right? I'm going to go and just, just like, I'm going to tour a ton. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make cassettes and sell them, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you know, it, it, but it is inspiring. I mean, you know, the, the, the classic example of, of what you're talking about to me is like the, the the Beatles, Stones, uh, Beach Boys nexus, right? Which is right. Which is is oh my god! What did they just do on that record, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, we have to do something as as insane, right? Wait a second, they did something with all these harmonies. We have to do something with all those harmonies, mm -hmm. and they were each they were all playing off of each other and being inspired by each other rather than uh, you know being you know. Uh, you know, discouraged by, by right. like, well, that guy's so good. You know, that, that guy's so good that I, I'm not, we're not the same. Uh, we're not the same species, right? It's like, I don't know if you've ever had that. I had the pleasure very, very briefly once for, a, for a quarter to sit on the paint um, at a Lakers game. Right. And when you stand up and you're around professional basketball players, you go, 
oh, we're just a different species. Like, right. This guy is six eight and hugely muscular, and there's no there's there isn't this thing where I'm going to suddenly be able to perform at that level, or I can work hard enough to get there. Like right. there is some level on which you're just it is a different thing, right? And I think you know some of that. I, I attributed some of that to like Jeff Buckley. Right, Jeff. Jeff was yes. sort of in his own thing, like that live at Shanae record. Is a guy who's just not giving a fuck what people want him to do, but he's he's doing what's driving him. I have a funny Jeff Buckley story, uh, and we got to be friendly. We met a bunch of times, but uh, so I was living in Chicago, playing in, in a band in Chicago, and and uh, was really thinking about moving to New York, mm-hmm. and somehow. A woman at a label, uh, which was called Imago Records at the time, um, she was into what I was doing, right? And she she was kind of an advocate. She was like, I, you know, I don't know that we can sign you. I don't know if you're ready yet, but I, I'm here to support you. I'm here to help you. And and I said, well, I'm going to be coming to New York. And she said, well, great. Well, if you're coming to New York, um, I'll help you get some gigs. I'll help you right. settle in. So, um Cool. A couple months go by and I'm, I, I tell her I'm coming to New York and she says, great. There's this club called Shanae. There's a guy named Jeff Buckley. He's played that. He plays there every week. It's packed. Mm-hmm. You're going to play. You're going to play there. You're going to play there with him. I was like, okay, great. Never, no idea who he is. Right. And, and I, I show up in New York and I go to Shanae on the night I'm supposed to play. And it is literally the, First week after he ended his residency at Chennai, mm-hmm. he, he had been playing for a year and he stopped. Oh. And so I played to the guy making coffee and, and like one person. And it was, you know, it was one of many experiences where you go, this is the thing. This is going to do it. I'm going to go play in front of all these New York people and they're going to be blown away. And then you, you go and you're like, how do I play? with the sound of an espresso machine going right right what key is that in by the way <laughs> right right i mean i need to tune to that but it was again back to that thing of like but if you know if you want to do it badly enough you, you can't see a way to not do it whereas you know very similarly i i studied film in school and then I, I, my first job out of school was like a PA on a, on a Cadillac shoot or something. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not different from being a guitar tech, right? It's like setting up the thing and laying out cable and doing this and that and this and that. Um, and I was like, this, I'm not coming back. This is the most boring Bull- at the end of this, you're going to have a car commercial. Like, yeah. I don't give a fuck about a car seconds. commercial. <laughs> yeah. Are we going to spend two days, three days doing this? No. Like, why? Why would I do that? Whereas the thing about live music, as you know, is like, it is on, right? There's an audience and there's a band. And if things go wrong, they are part of the show. There's no mm-hmm. like, okay, let's cut. Let's think about this again and redo it. It's like, how do I play with four strings, right? When Daisy came out, yeah. I was so excited about that fucking record, man. And like, I still love it. Sorry, I apologize. Man, you know what? <laughs> I let you down. <laughs> you know what? <laughs> this is so funny because, you know, um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, Prague 
metal band from the eighties, like Queensryche. Do you remember them? Sure, of course, oh, yeah. of course. Well, Jimbo, Jimbo uh, Barton, who produced Queensryche, produced Happy Nowhere. Oh, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, they were a favorite band of mine for you know all growing up, and they had this one album that was like kind of what we were talking about earlier. It was like the album, yeah. like the album, and it was an album yeah. called Promised Land, and. I was interviewing Jeff Tate a few years ago and the mm-hmm. singer, and we were talking and he said something about, you know, we were talking about, and he's like, so what's your favorite album? I'm just curious. I'm like, oh man, promised land. And he was like, really? Right. And I'm like, why do I feel like I just gave you the wrong answer? <laughs> you know? right. And he was right. like, he was like, so can you tell me why that album right. was your favorite? And I explained to him how, you know, I just turned 21. There was a lot of songs about the turning of technology, the incoming of technology and things, but that like, I kind of felt like I was going into my adult years into a whole new place. And he was just like, well, you thought much more about that album than I did, you know? Right, right, <laughs> and so, right. But so like, but so like with Daisy, it was kind of the same thing because, you know, when Happy Nowhere came out, I was literally just starting like in my first year or so as a folk singer, you know, right. you know, I'd right. gone from playing bass in a, in a metal band to <laughs> you know, playing folk music, this new music, right. this singer songwriting music that was bl- like taking me away. And so when Daisy came out, it was right as I feel like I was turning, I was getting better at it, mm-hmm. you know? And I was sure. like, Oh man, this is a little more rocking. It's great. Now, right. you know, it doesn't have, you know, I wish I was here, but God damn, right. it's got homecoming parade. And that song just rips right. my, you know what I mean? And so what, what I'm getting at that is it's always interesting to me to talk to, talk to an artist when they're like, yeah. oh, that wasn't a, a, a great, a favorite album of mine. And I'm like, right. well, it was mine. Right. Well, it's, it, it, it's so, it's so tied up into, and that's one of the things that like, you know, it, it's like learning as a as a musician. If someone says "great show" when you felt it was a shitty show, you don't you don't negate their feeling, right? You don't say, "No, it was a bad show," right? No, you don't you you don't understand what you just experienced. I I understand that it was bad. Maybe it was a bad show for me and a great show for you. That's great. Um, and similarly with records, you know, it's they're so tied up in you know, in, in memory, right? Daisy's tied up in the the relative failure to, compared to Happy Nowhere to the lack of, you know, it's really like, it's hard to explain, but when you're the, when you're a priority or you're having a hit record at a label, people show up and take you places and things happen and, and you go to radio stations and they are, yeah, and they're going crazy. And literally on, on the radio tour for Daisy, I would go into radio stations and they go, Oh, no way, I didn't know you had a new record. <laughs> it's like, okay, that feels bad, right? So so it's hard to, you know, I, I think you know, there are a few songs I really like on, on Daisy that I'm really, really like that that fit in the, the songs I'm proudest of in my catalog. Um, but I, I wish it was a little more, uh, you know, something else. But it was, you know, it, it is what it is. You move on and, and make the next one. At what point? So obviously, you know, you, you had we had Happy Nowhere, which was a huge hit. You had yeah. Daisy, which obviously you said, you know, we had some issues, complications, yeah. industry bullshit with. 
and then like you were dogs i view is a was a band that all of a sudden was huge on my radar and then disappeared and i was like sure. where'd they go daisy had come out there was yeah. there was no atlanta show there was no i was like right. where are they at so obviously right. with all this transition you know and change for you came with a level of i'm sure like depression disappointment things yeah. like that now, just based on what I've, I've read about you in the past, in like older interviews, like th- there's a there's a huge gap of interviews <laughs> between you. And like, like, like I think the last one I read was like 96, 97 or 98. And then and then there was yeah. another one a few years ago that you talked with somebody, which right. we're going to talk about Titanic in a second. But um, okay. Um, okay. but do you know what I mean? So, so I was like, there's this yeah. huge chunk of life missing. And that was why I reached out to you. So because... Sure. Obviously, you know, you're an important artist and a big part of my my life, but right. I was like, what the fuck has he been doing? <laughs> right, right. Sure, <laughs> so fair like, enough. And so- and you know, that's what's so interesting about you know, being being in the pre-internet age, right? You there was no there wasn't really a way to keep people up on what was happening and and you know, I didn't have that that relationship with fans that artists now have for better and for worse. Um but you know, I, I I knuckled back down and and wrote uh, what turned out to be Propeller. Yes, um, yeah. and made that record, which is a great record. But I mean, it, it's thank you. To me, when I heard that record, I was like, okay, that should have been like Happy Nowhere, Propeller, and then maybe Daisy. Right, right, right. I I agree, and it was the weirdest thing because the. You know, basically, the president of the label said, "You know, I'm tired of this dog's eye view thing. I want you to make a solo record." And I was like, "It's all the same, right? I'm it. it I, it's just me with people." But so sure, if you want to call it Peter Stewart, great, right? And so I turned it in, and they dropped me, right? And and they they were like, "Yeah, nice record. We don't know what to do with it." Um, and and you know. Uh, in 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 defense of them like they they were good about it they gave me the record back right um i mean i still owe sony i think it was like one million one hundred sixty three thousand dollars uh was the last royalty statement of what i owe them so they when i say they gave me back the record they um they you know they let me go bring it somewhere and it was a weird thing because you know it i, I that record felt right to me it felt like what i was supposed to be doing and then you know and then i went on to a little label and at vanguard and they you know there was a lot of we're a family and you know this is a family record company and we're we're all in it together and then and then um then i realized i i don't like my family that much why did i fall for the family thing right um and they they hit me with this was on tomorrow always comes um uh they hit me with okay so we're not going to put the record out yet what we want you to do is like get a few friends and get in a van and go build up buzz and tour around the country i was like i did that when i was 25 i did that when i was 23 i did that a lot i mean a lot and and at 35 or whatever i was 33 i was like i'm not getting a fucking van and and you know and that's where it started to turn for me right because all of a sudden the things i would do no matter what i was like no i don't think so and and you know just to 
introduce this as part of the equation, you know, my, um, the way I coped with the relative failure of Daisy, um, you know, it does two things, right? You get angry at, at the company and at people, whatever. Um, but you also, there, there's a tendency to go, yeah, maybe this feeling that I was a fraud all along is accurate. Maybe I'm actually a fraud, right? Maybe, yeah. maybe that's the case. And my way of coping with that um, was I started drinking a lot. Uh, yeah. I, I just started getting shit faced on stage and I had fun playing, you know, I mean, I remember the, this, the last, the last show of the, it must've been the Daisy tour was a radio show. And it was literally this silly show where we all flew home to our respective homes. And then they were like, we forgot you have a radio show in St. Louis. Right. So we flew back to St. Louis and I literally, I, I was so drunk that we did three songs that night as an encore that I had no memory of doing. I was in a total blackout wow. on stage, uh, you know, and, and like, it was scary because I was like, I was in stage in front of people and I have no idea what happened. And my band was like, yeah, you were fine. It was this thing of like, you know, by, by the time put out tomorrow always comes, I'd gotten sober. Um, and, and there was a real, you know, I was self-medicating my insecurity and fear and pain with alcohol. Whereas music once alone, uh, you know, provided that transcendence. Now, now I needed the extra to get there. And it was sort of a, a decision to get off that train and figure out a way, uh, you know, the conversation I had with myself. Um, so I was at a, wedding in las vegas on whatever that fake lake is in las vegas um and it, we had they had two boats and so you're on the boat you're sleeping on the boat whatever um and my girlfriend at the time had broken up with me that that morning um and you know at 9 a.m i got on the you know got on the boat and started having a couple beers and then a, a friend of mine um had ecstasy right and i i loved ecstasy ecstasy was super fun like ecstasy was how i felt when i was you know 15 and heard whatever for the first time it was like oh i like people i'm comfortable in my body i love everything this is great but i um so i, I did have ecstasy it was fun and then i was sitting on top of the boat and my friend was swim my friend with the drugs was swimming from one boat to the next to come over and I was like, I was like, oh, I need some more ecstasy. And then and I'm literally alone on the top of this boat thinking, and then I had this conversation with myself, which was, okay, my relationships aren't working. All of my girlfriends, when they've broken up with me, have said the same things about me. It can't be all them. They're not that crazy. Right. And I'm in a dangerous spot of believing that I need to make music to be happy but the way, the things i have to do to to put me in a position to make music make me unhappy so you know the the deal i made with myself was i'm going to get sober and if i if i become totally content and i never write another song again i will be content like then and i will be content with contentment right and and if I get sober and 
I, I'm not content with it. I'll change it. Mm-hmm. But the way it was working, you know, with drinking and drugs in the picture was just, it wasn't going to lead to either, right? It was just going to lead to to more fractured relationships and more stuff like that. But I, I, I literally made that bargain with myself, like, all right, if I never write another song again, I've written some and that's fine. And then, and then I got back to writing. Um, and in fact, Tomorrow Is Comes was the first time I had um, what you might call a work ethic about being a songwriter, right? It, it was like, I literally would, I was living in Portland at the time. I would wake up in the morning, I would go get coffee. I would be at my desk at 9 a.m. I would write till three, maybe four. I would revise things. I was conceptualizing things. I was reading a bunch of stuff. Like I treated it like a job and it was great, super fun Uh, versus the way I treated it, you know, growing up, which was, or or, or early songwriting, which was, I'm so hungover, I can't do anything today, um, but I don't mind playing a G chord and, and mumbling to myself for two hours. Right. So uh, a song might come out of it, yeah. right? And just just being there for it. So, you know, I, I disappeared in that way, right? Like partly industry wise, and then partly just waiting for new record companies, and then partly, you know, the the big pivot after that in my life, right? Was in the same week that I had Vanguard, the label, telling me to go get in a van. Uh, with some friends and create buzz. Uh, <laughs> I I was offered a job, like I'd been sober a couple of years, uh, and I was offered a job that was like, hey, this person's coming out of rehab and they have to go shoot a movie, mm-hmm. um, and we want you to go be with them to be a good influence and help keep them on the straight and narrow, and we'll pay you, you know, X a week, and you're going to be staying at the Four Seasons here and the Chateau Marmont here and this and this here. Uh, and it's three months and it, it was like three months of, of really solid pay. And I got to show up for someone and be of service. And right. so like I, I had that decision to make, which was, do I do what I did when I was 23 and get back in a van and hope something's different? Or do I take this other thing that seems to be, you know, like when I push on the door of the music industry for the last two records, at least maybe three, I would push in the door and the door is locked and not budging and dead bolted. Right. And every time I'd get it cranked open a little bit, I'd be like, Oh, I found this new manager. It's going to be great. Slam back shut. Right. (laughs) And, and, and then when I was working in, in a more therapeutic environment, right. In in service and, and in sobriety, um, doors just kept flying open. Right. It was like, you know, walking through the doors in Star Trek. Right. I, I would just like walk up near the door and be like, yeah, come on in, go do this other thing. I later got the ultimate test, and I, I, I can't name the person, but I, I will just say that there, there was a band around the time that we were a band um, that I couldn't stand. I, I hated them. I hated the way the singer sounded. I hated the music. Um, I hated more than anything that they sold 10 or 20 million records, mm-hmm. um, right? It was insane jealousy, insane, like, and, and, and we weren't the same kind of music at all, right? But I literally, um, I was finishing one sober companion job uh, and flying back from Australia, and I landed at the airport, and I checked my messages, and it was the person who sent me out on these kind of jobs, mm-hmm. and he said, there's this singer He's in trouble. He's having problems. Just go ahead and fly there and start this gig. 
And it, lo and behold, it was the very same person I had despised and, and just like, just loathed. And uh, all of a sudden I had to figure out a way to really help him. Right. Like, I had to go like, oh, I'm, I'm here to help you. So I have to put all that aside. Right. And, you know, the only indignity in that job at all was that I would go around to, you know, radio visits with them. Mm-hmm. And, I, and, and occasionally, like once or twice, walk into a radio station and we're like, hey, blah, blah, blah. Good to see you. Great. I love the new record. And then someone would look at me and go, wait a second. Are you that guy? What? Yeah. Why are you here? What are you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm just hanging out. Like, I'm just, we're just friends. I just come to his radio shows with him, you know. And uh, so that was a weird, that was a little bit weird, but it was a, you know, like, I think we as humans like to feel useful yeah. and like to feel like we have a purpose, right? It's why it's harder to write songs if you think no one's ever going to hear them or make art if you think no one's ever going to see it. And there are those people who can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but it's a lot, it's about the two way communication for me, right? It's about, I want to know that the thing I'm doing is having an effect on you and you are having an effect on me, right. um, versus, you know, the abstract thing about a radio hit and being on a video is you have no sense, like you're not in that person's car when it comes on the radio. Right. You're not, you have no sense. It's like, oh, it's this abstract thing that's happening. Here. Oh, it got played a million times. Okay. Mm-hmm. I don't know what that means, but right, right. You know, right. Like, like, I can't, okay. Do I, do I make some money soon? I remember, I remember one of my funniest, uh, Matt Malley, who was the original bass player for Counting Crows, um, like five months after August and everything after it blew up, he came in all excited. Um, and we were on tour and he was like, oh my God, guys, I just got my first royalty check for a record. I just got it. He opened it up. It was for $23 or something. And he was like, oh, okay. I get it. I, I, thought, I thought it was going to be a little different, but that's what it is. Is it hard for you to think about playing music, writing songs, like where you're at right now in this moment? And if so, is it, is it a fear? Or is it more of like a, it's just not who I am anymore? Well, it, it's more the latter. Um, I mean, I've written some songs in the last few years, it, you know, uh, maybe some of the better songs I've ever written, just, you know, two or three, four or five songs. Um, but I don't, I, I've just lost any desire to go out and try to make people listen to them, right? I've just, like, I just don't have the, I'm not afraid of anything. Okay. Like, yeah. actually, a, a friend of mine who lives in town here owns a brewery and they have a little stage and, and he has, he's got a great studio, you know, in the same facility. Uh, and we were jamming a little bit there, um, where I was playing drums very badly. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and he was like, Hey man, why don't we do a thing sometime? Not even tell anyone would just two or three of us sit up on stage and trade songs and play, uh, one night. And I was like, yeah, okay. That's exactly the level of stakes I want. Right. Which is, I don't want to announce a show and hope people are there and be worried about it. But uh, on the other thing on regrets, I, I got a really lightning bolt lesson for me on this which was um, I was in Australia on a Silver Companion gig 
working out, like running on a treadmill, uh, overlooking Sydney and the Sydney Bay and, and like just, just amazing. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and clearly, you know, my best days in music were sort of behind me. And, and I happened to be like, I was in Australia the same day that Matchbox 20 was in Australia. So I was going to see their show that night. So there's, I was very happy for them, but also like, why do I not have 12,000 people uh, who want to see me in Australia? This, this would, that would be nice. Right. Be awesome. Um, and, uh, and I had this realization that so there are two people there are more than this, but two of the main people who I had a lot of envy of, right. And a lot of comparison to in, in my, in my mind were Elliot Smith yeah, and Jeff Buckley, right. Elliot, because he was indie cred and people loved him. And I I loved his records. They were great, Mm -hmm. but also just like people, people loved him. Right. And thought he was cool. Right. And, and I never, I never got accused of being cool. Like some, you know, the, the highlight of, uh, of journalistic hyperbole was, um, like, I think the New Yorker or something said Peter Stewart, uh, you know, folk, folk rock, uh, what did they say? Like, it, it was something to imply that I, you know, like cult hero, folk, yeah, folk right, rock right. cult hero. I was like, yes! Like, right now I'm here. Um, but anyway, and so on that level, there's that. And on the Jeff level, first of all, his voice and singing and, and, and all of that stuff. And Grace was an amazing record. Uh, but also there was a more personal envy, which was that we were on the same label. Right. And I shit, you know, and, and he was a, a beautiful looking human being, right? I, I will give him that. But anytime I had meetings in the, in the Columbia records offices, someone at some point would go like, Oh my God, do you see how handsome Jeff Buckley is? Do you see how amazing he is? Like women love that he's got an aura, like all this stuff about him. Plus his singing and voice. I was like, fuck that guy. Right. I like, just like, I mean, I love his music, but why is everyone deciding that? And there were, there were other people similarly, like who I thought people would attribute, like they're mysterious and, and intriguing. And I'm going, no, it's really dumb. And just don't say, say a lot. Right. But anyway, I was in Australia and, and I had this lightning bolt moment of, um, I don't know what year this was, probably 2003, four. Uh, I, but I, maybe later, I had this lightning bolt moment where I went, the two guys I would have traded places with in a second to have their careers are dead. They're dead. Right. They're dead. They are not coming back. They're not making any more records. Whatever it was that was going on that made them special also got stopped. Right. Right. So They're not even just dead, but looking at where the what their life, their life patterns, the life yeah. pattern that they each led, yeah. Yeah. led up to their deaths. I think I might have dodged a bullet here, you know. Yeah, exactly. And and look, I know I know people who have become very very successful who stayed relatively sane. Um, you know, Rob Thomas is in that category where it's like. He's just, he's just him. He's the same guy I met, you know, in, in the Viper room before their first record came out. He's just mm-hmm. nice. He's a good guy. Um, and he's been incredibly successful and he, whatever, he's fine. Um, but there are other people for whom it really does them in. And I think, you know, 
part of it for me is if, you know, if, if you're unhappy with yourself and you succeed, you're still going to be unhappy with yourself. You know, I thought, I, I, I genuinely thought, I mean, this is not hyperbolic, I really thought that getting a song on the radio and on MTV would fix me. I really thought it would finally lift the burden of me feeling like a piece of shit, right? And, and make me go, see, I deserve to be at the table, right? But it didn't, right? Mm -hmm. It just brought a new level of insecurity and, and, and a new level of fear about like, oh, now this can go away, right? Like, not only do I not necessarily build on it, but it could go away. Right. Um, and that's, you know, that's hard. When you hit hit it that quickly, that early, not that it was quick, but, you know, like when you hit it that early into a, um, like, right. your, like your first record, you know, had right. a huge right. hit, right? So right. then you're kind of like, okay, so where do I go from here? Like, and it better be up. I can imagine, like, that just takes the, the wind out of your sails, but... Like for me, like again, going kind of going back to your your songwriting is that at the age that I was at when I was listening to you guys and figuring out like where I wanted to go as a musician, I kind of had that moment like you were talking about in um, Australia. It was Australia, you right. said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Where where I where I kind of went home one day and I just said, I just need to be okay with the fact that I am never gonna be a full-time musician that I'm right. not going to be on the radio that I'm not going right. to be on MTV. And like that kind of mindset to a lot of people around me was negative, but to mm -hmm. me, my creative and artistic life, I felt right. like it began because then all right. of a sudden it wasn't about me wanting to make it big and to make a career. Right. Of it. it was like, I want to be the best songwriter I can be. And if I'm playing a coffee shop to seven people, I want right. one of them to feel something, right. you know? Right. Did you, uh, have you read uh, Rick Rubin's book, the creativity book? No, no. It's really good. It's really, really good. It's all, you know, it's all sort of short snippets. Right. Um, but, you know, two of the things that, that he says in there, you know, one is like, all, all you can do, you can't worry about, what you think other people want to hear because you're dead in the water as soon as you do that. Yeah. So the only thing we could do, you know, he's talking about making chili peppers record. Just like the only thing we could do would be the thing that would bring us immense joy in that moment in the studio and make us laugh and make us happy. And then if the world got it, great. But if the world didn't get it, we still found the thing. Right. And, and I think it's very, you know, you talk about that pivot for you. It's it's very different when you go like, I'm just going to do the the weird little thing I do, and and whoever likes it likes it, and whoever doesn't doesn't. Versus, if I do this thing that sounds kind of like this thing, then I'm going to get to this place, right? And uh, you know, it's just it's never ending. One of the things that got me really into, into wanting to reach out to you also, like I said, aside from being a fan for so many years, was reading an interview that you did not too long ago. And a little something I did not know about had something to do with a connection to the movie Titanic and the song 
every <laughs> everything falls apart. And I was like, that can't be real. Like that sounds like a fucking urban legend. <laughs> and then I re- so what happened with that? Well, I mean, I sort of said this in that interview, or sort of the the title of the interview, but I mean, I literally found out about it the same day or the day before I did that interview by someone forwarding me something that said, you know, that, that showed it, like they forwarded me a clip of it. And they were like, I'm sure you know about this, but, and I was like, no. I've never, I have no idea. I have no idea that, that like, this is anything to do with anything. What are you talking about, right? Thinking it was a joke, right? Someone someone just kind of spliced in, everything falls apart and said, oh, alternate ending. Um, so it, it, it was very weird to find out. And, and I don't know how it came about. I mean, except that probably while they were filming or in post on that movie, it was a big song and... And, and, you know, and he put it in the, you know, put it in the rough cut of the movie. Um, and, and I didn't know about it until, until that day, like whatever, a couple of years ago. And it was fun, right? Like the fun things for me now are like this um, or, or that, or the, the sort of carom shots where it's like all of a sudden they go like, oh, there's some ripple, right? There's some little wave. I just got a text, not text, an email. The other day, um, this is one of the most, like, it made me so inordinately happy. Um, but someone reached out to me, and they, they have something to do with therapeutic community. I don't remember exactly. But the guy basically said, I run this vinyl re-release um, label. And with your permission, we'd like to approach Sony about licensing your album, putting out Happy Nowhere on vinyl. Right. And I, and, and literally like the, you ask about regrets. The one thing that, that one of the things that really eats at me is like, we were just too late to get vinyl. Right. We we're just at the point where it was like, no, here's a CD. And, and there's something which in my mind, because of what I grew up with, more legitimate about vinyl. I mean, I, I like the way it sounds. It's great. So uh, I, I mean, I responded to the guy. I was like, "100 percent." If if uh, you know, let's get Sony to 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 do that, and and you know, he's going to have me write something for it, uh, you know, for the liner notes. But it was so great. It was like, oh, great! I'm, someone someone cares enough to email me about putting that record out on vinyl. That's amazing. That to me kind of goes back to how what you were talking about about like when we were younger and how we used to absorb music and listen to music versus listening to playlists you know i you know part of my midlife crisis and my mid midlife crisis i was you know was was buying a turntable and listening to all the records that i had as a kid and buying new vinyl and what it reminded me of right away was that you had to really commit to listening to something when you were listening to a record. Cause if you got up to take a piss and you came back, you missed three songs. So like, you know, you didn't get the whole, like, Oh, I'll just, you know, know, put it back and just hope you could, you know, make it. Right. I have to go pee again. But like, that was the magic of listening to so many of those records. And there, and and as you were talking about, cause I was going to ask you that question because happy nowhere to me was, is one of those albums that I still listen to, even if I'm going to stream it, I listen to it in sequence. 
because right. that's right. how I listened to it. Right. It, it's and that sequence is ingrained in you, right? There, there are records like that for me where it's like I, I know exactly, I, I know exactly what's coming. And if you put it on shuffle, I go, ah, that doesn't go after that. <laughs> That's right. I'm like, right. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like, no, the prince's favorite son can't be first. No, it has to right. be, which I was, you right. know, it's, but, yeah, so, yeah. but that's a great feeling of like some sort of like artistic or even somewhat of a personal validation to, to know that you, you succeeded in a way that you didn't really think you were succeeding in the beginning. Right. And again, that's that difficulty of, you know, let's say you play in that coffee house to seven people and you really move that one person. You don't necessarily know about that. They don't right. necessarily tell you that. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's sort of an abstract and, and like, well, I hope some people are going to find something about this, but I can't control that. Right. And, you know, and you also can't control how people are going to actually respond or how they're going right. to actually tell you that my thing was when I, I met you after the the show in Atlanta and there was probably about 20 people out there, you know, and you were signing mm -hmm. my CD, which I'm super pissed because I had this great signed copy of Happy Nowhere that you drew a picture of, okay. of a house on the inside and you wrote Don's house. And then, mm -hmm. you, and I had, I lived like an hour away from the venue and you wrote, thanks for the drive. Thanks for driving. Right. And right. A week later, my car got broken into and they stole all my CDs. Oh, shit. But I'm in sorry. my mind, I remembered meeting you. I still remember talking to you. And I gave you a let, like this rambling letter I had written and I put it uh -huh. in an envelope. And I was like, if you ever want to read it, just read it, you know? And <clears throat> that was my way of letting people know, yeah. you know, that right. like, or a musician. And looking back on it now, it's very archaic when you think about it. But socially awkward and you know being social anxiety as a kid and not really knowing what it was the best thing i could do was sit down with pen and paper and write what i wanted to say to that person and instead of trying to say it just give it to them i mean it's it's really nice right it's nice to be uh you know it's nice to be thought of and because i have no i mean what has freed me is, is i have no aspirations right if i was looking at this podcast as a way to get back in the public eye and a way to get a career going i'd be miserable right i'd be clutching it so tightly it would choke um but with any of these things that happens like oh that's funny okay yeah all right that's great Final, absolutely like let's let's go do it so to me it's i'm not out soliciting it and and obviously some of it's coming back to me and you have to sort of extrapolate and go, well, if these three people have reached out, there are probably some other people who were really into it and didn't reach out. Um, and that's great. So it's, it's all bonus to me, right? It's, it, it's all bonus rounds because it's like, I'm, I'm fine. I'm doing, you know, I'm doing something else. Um, I'm getting sort of my artistic needs met in, in, in the creativity of conversation of therapy. Right. Uh, and, and so I don't, uh, you know, so it's just nice. I mean, it's just, it's just a plus. I struggle with how far, how long ago certain things have happened. <laughs> sure. when, when I was sure. doing, when I did the math to figure out when, how long it's been since happy nowhere came out. Of course, in my mind, everything is 15 years for some reason. 
And I was sure. like, holy shit, no, it's getting like 28 maybe or, sure. or 29 right. years or something. And, you know, a very popular Crazy. thing, you know, and actually it was really just 15 years ago. So we'll just leave it at that. But um, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, don't, I feel like I, I looked at you, you were like, oh man, <laughs> it's like a heart. No, no. I mean, it's a long time ago. That's why it feels like another lifetime. I mean, it, it's a really long time ago. It really does. But like, you know, a very a very big thing for artists to do is to celebrate anniversaries of releases right. and stuff. Right. And while, uh, you know, you've st- basically said like, you know, you don't have that same desire to do things yeah. like that. Have you thought about doing something like to kind of celebrate it, whether it be artistic, creative or like? Not, not really. I mean, I, as much as I've thought of, you know, the, the potential release of a vinyl record and being able to write something for it, like that, that's exciting. Um, that, that could be a, a, a stepstone towards commemorating Happy Nowhere in some way. But the, the, the path I don't have any interest in going down is like, you know, the 30th, 30th anniversary happy nowhere reunion tour right and and go out and subject myself to like uh, you know it would suck to go out and play to five people right um except if i went out to play to five people then i'd be thrilled right like if i was playing at this guy's coffee shop and great love it i have no expectations but if i was trying to mount uh you know a business uh around it, it it would be miserable well, because with that, not only comes with the expectations of any kind of like business, but it also comes with the expectations of people who are like, you know, like me, like one of the things you said in our first part of the interview was, was, you know, like in my mind, I was like, dog's life, he's fucking huge. Like they're going right, to be right. doing two sold out shows at the Fox theater. If they, re- if they, you know, if, if Peter reunited or started doing it again, they'd be packing theaters and stuff. And like you said, probably wouldn't be that way. So in my right. mind, as a fan of music, I'm like, that's a, it, it, it's, you know, it's an, it's a no brainer that it would be huge. But then like, I can totally right. see putting the hard work into it, putting all that mental and emotional work to go out and play yeah. to seven people when you did it not too long ago because you didn't give a fuck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like it's like a totally different game, right. you know? Right, right, right. I think for me, you know, if I'm being totally honest about the path out of music, aside from getting my teeth kicked in a lot at the end, um, uh, was that I was bored. I mean, part of the reason I was drinking, but I was like, it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a relatively intelligent guy. I went to college. I read a lot mm-hmm. and playing the same 10 or 12 songs every night day after day after day in a different town and then back to the same town and then somewhere else like is really exciting for a few years and then at some point you go this is just this is what like this is my job now this is what i'm going to do every day and it and it's not you know it's harder and harder to connect with it and really connect with the audience and um and and i got bored right it was like oh this isn't this isn't you know uh, as much as you know, listening to music uh, always really moved me. Playing music really, really moved me, and I felt connected to it. And when I started to feel disconnected from it, it was a warning sign to go like, "Oh, maybe, 
maybe not. And also, I mean, this is this is judgy, and I I, I don't mean it to be, but there I looked around at certain artists who are like still out there at fifty, trying to make it happen, mm-hmm. or or trying to restoke the fire or something, and it made me sad. Right? I was like, yeah. I don't I don't want to do that. Like, I don't want to be the guy who's like putting on the you know putting on the costume 15 years after after the thing and trying to do it again right Um, but again i have no like if like i'm so you know uh like if i thought uh, again being honest if i thought that if i put the band back together and we went back on tour it would be as successful as the matchbox tour was this summer Mm -hmm. i'd do it for a summer in a heartbeat right if if like I'd love to put ten thousand people a night. That would be that would be fantastic. Um, but I don't have any. There's there's nothing indicating that that would be the case, right? There's no you know there's no guarantee. For every you know Matchbox Twenty, there's another band that you know was around and isn't anymore, right? Or is around and is still like Sister Hazel or something, right? Who are out kind of trying to make it. Edwin McCain. I don't know what he's doing, but. Uh, like trying to make stuff happen still. And, and at a certain point, it's like, yeah, you move on, you mature out of it. Yeah. And, you know, like I said, though, but one of the things I so appreciate of you is that, you know, for one, that you were so awesome to actually reach back out to me and to do this. And that's fun. It's because fun. As, as, as a person, as a human being, as an art musician, like to fill in the gap of time, and to know that you're still around and you're still right, out right. there and well, and that I got the opportunity to tell you how much your music meant to me I, and still I does, really appreciate you know, is, is a cool thing. And I, you know, I appreciated you taking the time to, to talk. It's, it's my pleasure. It's funny. I, I think about that very thing. Sometimes you're talking about like, occasionally I think of someone and I go, whatever happened to that person? Right. Mm-hmm. And they're not in the, they're not in the press anymore. They're not in public eye anymore. And, you know, okay. They, they could have gone down a bad path and be in a very bad place and, you know, you know, dying in a basement somewhere or, or, you know, or there's me, right. It could have been like, you. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just, you know, like, Oh, so-and-so decided just not to go on the road anymore. Right. I, I remember, a. A sound guy before before I really even started touring, the sound guy at the Mercury Lounge in New York City. He used to go out um, uh, on the road as a sound guy for a Swerve Driver. Oh yeah, right? yeah, and yeah. and he was a great guy. And uh, the Swerve Driver had a tour going out, and then the next night I saw the sound guy at the Mercury. I was like, "What happened?" He's like, "I just couldn't get on a tour bus again. I'm done." Mm-hmm. Right? And I was like, "Oh, okay, that that happens." Yeah, and and it's and and it's okay to go off and do something else if there's contentment, right? If if there's, you know, my big goal in life is to be joyful, right? To to have some gratitude and be joyful and be happy, and be content. Yeah. Um, and whatever is going to bring you to contentment, as long as it doesn't harm other people, seems seems valid, right? And and that can change, right? The, the, this used to bring me contentment, doesn't anymore. Now this does. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just staying, to me, it's the real growth is staying in touch with that and not, you know, not going back and playing the old hits because it used to work. 
you know, back in the day, we didn't have like the glory of cell phones to capture moments, sure, thankfully, sure. but sometimes, God. unfortunately. And one of the things that always kind of bummed me out was the lack of dog's eye view live footage that is on the sure. internet or on YouTube. Sure. Like, were you were you in touch with it at that point to kind of document your own like live performances yeah. and whatnot? No, I mean, we, we, I think we probably taped every performance and I would listen to it in the bus and, and, and do that. But, um, but I don't, I don't know where those tapes go. And uh, to tell you a, a tragic comic tale. So at, at some point, you know, after being on Columbia and uh, I don't know, at, at some point I moved out to Los Angeles and, um, and when I moved out to Los Angeles from New York, where I moved to Seattle actually, and then Los Angeles, but um, my manager at the time uh, for Dogs of You and me got a uh, storage space in in Long Island, and we put a bunch of furniture in there, put all the Dogs of You stuff in there, boxes of old T-shirts, live pictures, whatever, like my tax records, all this stuff. Just a ton of shit. And then I was in LA and neither of us had gone to the storage unit for eight years, right? And and it was like, what are we doing? Let's go see if there's anything we want in there. And then and then let go of that because we've been paying for this thing for eight years and we've never been there. Um, and, you know, I, I, I regret this a little, parts of this a little bit now, but we got into the storage space and I started looking through things and it was taking me down memory lane. And I was like, and I was like, oh, I'm either gonna spend a week in here or I'm gonna walk out right now and leave everything behind. And we went up to the front desk and we're like, you can have everything in there. They're like, oh, we can't do that. We can't, I was like, and my manager was like, there are thousands of dollars worth of furniture in there. And they're like, oh, we'll take care of it, right? And. And so all of any, anything that did get documented, uh, you know, is, is in the ether, right? Yeah. Uh, which is too bad. I mean, there was one, there was one photographer who did some live shots of us that I loved. Um, no idea who that is anymore. I don't remember his name, but I, I had some prints of those and lost those, but yeah, it's, uh, I, there's, <laughs> there's not a lot. And there's not a lot of live footage. I was like, you got you got any extra dogs I view swaggling? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I have a lot of copies of Propeller, I think, or Tomorrow Always Comes, maybe both of those. Uh, I, have a, I have a lot of copies of those, but uh, not a lot. I mean, a couple boxes, um, but but no, no swag. Uh, I do. I do love the Daisy painting in the back. Oh yeah, that that uh, that stayed with me. I got to keep that. Um, it's one of the many things I owe Sony for, I'm sure. I remember like that, that it's weird because when, like, I wouldn't have remembered that there was a shit like that. Like, it's like, oh, okay. That's right. Because when you were like, when you were like, I don't remember having a shirt like that. And I was just like, um, so this is what was on the side of the shirt. And I don't, this is, it says uh, Blue Fish. Blue Fish, yeah. It was a clothing company that we did like a collaboration with. Uh, I my my they were good friends friends with the crows and I was touring with the crows and we became good friends uh the people who did blue fish and and then I was like 
I don't know, wear your shirts. Why don't we do a, why don't we do merch? Um, so we did, it was fine. It's amazing. Cause that was the only one they had at their show when I saw right. you guys. And I, and then when you were like, I don't even remember that shirt. I was like, you mean there was more dogs I view shirts that I didn't get. Yeah. yeah there were, there were other ones. Um, there, there were definitely other ones. The, uh, it's funny in Atlanta, I have one, uh, one embarrassing, uh, memory from Atlanta, which is later on, like later, maybe between propeller and tomorrow this comes, I had a manager who was based in Atlanta mm-hmm. and, uh, it was Russell Carter and he managed the Indigo girls. Okay. So part of their like Christmas show, I think it was at the variety, but I don't remember. Part of the, like their their Christmas show was they would have other people come out and sing with them and play with them, and so um, I should preface this by saying I'm not particularly good at learning or playing other people's songs unless I'm <laughs> obsessed with them. But we got up on stage for sound check and we're playing closer to fine, yeah, right? and and singing the backgrounds and stuff. And and I'm trying to play the chord and and one of them turned around and was like, "Now this chord, this chord." I was like, oh, "Okay." And then, uh, like two minutes later, she just came around and unplugged my guitar. Um, she's like, we're just going to have you look like you're playing. I was like, oh, I, fuck. That sucks. Like, oh, this is truly the end of the road. <laughs> yeah, this is true. This is sad. I'm like, I'm being unplugged. But, but on the other side, like, there's this other part of like 15 year old me or 18 year old me, whenever Indigo Girls came out, it's like, what? You're on stage with the Indigo Girls? Like, how did that happen? Right? So, it, you know, it, it's, all, it's all an interesting ride. I mean, the, my kids couldn't be less interested in, in me playing music or playing guitar. My, my daughter likes one song because it's her name a bunch of times. Um, but basically, it's like yeah, I sit and play, and they go, "Hey, can we do something else, or can we turn on the TV?" Or you know, there's no audience. I mean, this is one of those things. Like the the other way it comes around to me, which is kind of funny, um, is you know, everything falls apart, as you know, was a weird. You know, it, it was like Mr. Jones in that cultural like uh, it was everywhere, right? It was one of those songs that like everywhere you went, it was there, it was there, it was there, it was there. If you had the record, if you didn't have the record. It was in the ether, right? It was out there. Um, and occasionally, you know, I, I'm doing something totally unrelated to music in any way. Like, you know, I, I help coach my son's football team. And somehow out of nowhere, someone has said something to someone else and someone walks up to me with the Everything Falls Apart video and goes, this is you? This is you? You're the, this is what? This is you? And they'll look at the video and go, yeah, yeah, that's young me. And they're like, they're like, I love this song. This song was amazing. This was like the, you know, soundtrack to my life. And it's, it's a fun thing to like in random ways catch that. Right. And, 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 and people are excited about it. And then I, I kind of go, yeah, different life and, and, and move on. Um, and I've only had, I've had maybe one or two therapy clients who were clearly coming to me for therapy because they were fans of the music, which I, I did those. I was like, yeah, let's not, let's not do this. When you love a band and you're, you know, they're, they're in, in a top tier for you. It's like, I, I feel sure. like you're a lot more sensitive to hearing like when things of that band pop up, you know, in sure. modern sure. times. 
Yeah. Um, my wife got t- completely addicted to TikTok like before the pandemic sure. yeah, or during the sure. pandemic because you know you know she, she's she's uh she's an epidemiologist uses okay. her brain all day and she's like i just need to dumb down every so she's right. watching right. tiktok we're laying up in bed and i hear everything falls apart and i'm i'm like what and she's like oh she's like don't you like this this is like one of your bands right and i'm like yeah and, I, and it was just some random tiktok video that used right. the song that's great. And then before the pandemic, my band, Collins Drive, we were kind of like a roots rock trio. Yeah, yeah. We were opening for, I don't know if you're familiar with a band called Shinedown. They're like a modern yeah, yeah, sure, alternative sure. band. Their guitar player um, had like a like a four-piece band that him and his friends basically went out and just did a bunch yeah. of just random shows and like yeah. um and they were doing sound check before we were on stage and they they covered everything falls apart in their set and i was just like shine down sky is covering the song you know what i mean and like yeah, i actually yeah. went up to him and the thing was is i fucking hate shine down didn't like them at all sure, sure, but sure. i was like dude dog's eye view and he was like you know dog's eye view and i'm like yeah he's like oh my god dude. and like and i'm just thinking to myself like wow okay that's a small world you know but like yeah, it's tiny it's but tiny. That's that kind of thing has to make you feel something good. Yeah, that's great. I mean, it's great. I mean, the thing, look, the 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 one one thing that hasn't happened that I would like to happen just because it would be uh, uh, it would be fun, but also would be financially uh, rewarding. Was you know I, I've felt for a long time that like everything falls apart is perfect for an insurance commercial. Right. It's perfect for like car wreck and this and that. And like, it's one of those things that like, if somebody, if like, if some fan or, or person who loved that record was at an ad agency and went like, Oh, why don't we use this old song for, you know, because it, everything falls apart. Right. It, and, um, that would be fun. Right. It'd be, it'd be fun because it'd be in the site guy, but it'd also be fun because it, it'd be nice to, to make some income, uh, from it be a little lucrative for you, you know? <laughs> yeah which would be great but it but it's you know it just try because when i hear like you know, i feel like i hear that rusted root song that i can't stand uh on tons of commercials and it's like okay that song wasn't bigger than my song someone someone just chose that for a reason but it's like hum, 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 hum. I'm like you know uh surely surely someone could uh, sub in everything falls apart and uh you know, damn you rusted root but <laughs> it's funny it's funny um but yeah it's it, it is nice when you know and and look we i mean we've covered this a little bit but you know for those bands you know i i too have those bands that were like you know i mentioned delmetri uh, i i have those bands that are like their record meant everything to me mm-hmm. and very few other people heard it right and and you forget it's that same weird perspective shift that you get where you go like yeah i better buy tickets because because you know i I remember this is an early version of this but i remember i was really into tragically hip around road apples and uh and i was living in chicago and they were coming to play in chicago and i was like all geeked out and i know they're a huge canadian band and I made sure to buy tickets and I, you know, and, and there were like 50 people there. Oh. And I was like, what? 
I thought oh. these guys, I thought these guys were huge. And they're like, yeah, they're huge in, in across the river, like across the water. <laughs> I mean, if you go up to Canada, uh, they're huge. But if you're here in, you know, if you're in Detroit or Chicago, no one gives a shit. Yeah. Um, but to me, it was like, you know, I, I was similarly, I mean, not that they didn't get big, but I was very obsessed with Crowded House. Oh, yes. Um, yeah. Particularly Temple of Low Men. Mm -hmm. uh, which I listened to on repeat on a cassette uh, while learning how to unicycle when I was in college. So, uh, like, so that 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 record is totally ingrained. And I, you know, if you had told me that Crowded House played stadiums, so I'd go like, yeah, of course they do. Like, everyone, they're they're the greatest band in the world. They're so fun live, right? Yeah. And then and then you go to a show and you're like, oh, there's some wow. people here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, uh, there's a songwriter out of. Um, uh, I'm, I'm gonna have to throw together a little playlist or something for you. Yeah, please. Some some music that just is incredible. But there's a songwriter named Marissa Nadler, and mm. she was out of Boston. And okay. when I discovered her, uh, one of her albums, like, you know, I was reading up on her and her shows in Boston, and she's selling out these small, you know, these venues and listening right. rooms, and all right. of a sudden she's coming to Atlanta. And I'm like, dude, I went online. I bought my ticket in advance. I was sure. like, I am not going to fucking miss this. I got there early so I could be up at the front. Sure. sure. Like 12 people were there. Yeah. Yeah. But it was the most amazing, one of the most amazing shows I ever saw, you know? And I just remember yeah. her going, oh, thanks for, thanks for being up front and singing along with all the songs. I was like, well, what happened to the other 500 that I thought we were going to be? Where is everybody else? Like, yeah. And she was like, I think they're in Boston, you know? <laughs> like, just... Yeah, fair enough. One of my favorite rock and roll lines, we had a uh, we had a tour manager for a while who I, I cycled through a lot of tour managers. He wound up uh, uh, in, in basically a mental health facility for three months after our tour, which which doesn't speak well of, of how lovely I was to be around. Um, <laughs> but he had been tour manager for Robert, Robert Earl Keane Jr., and he said, uh, he told me this thing Robert O'Keefe said, uh, which is he, he came in to the dressing room to the band right before his show. I was in a little club. And he said, hey, it's not crowded out there. But you remember, we give the same show to five or six people that we give to eight or nine. I love that. Right? That was the pep talk. It was like, yeah, it's like no one's here. Here we go. There was a great folk singer that had a song. I forgot what it, I forgot what it was called, but I always remember the line. It says, um, it, "It was like a like a play on the Bon Jovi, Wanted Dead or Alive, where I've seen sure, a million sure, sure. faces and I've rocked them all." And he had a song that said, "You know, I've seen a million faces and I've rocked two or three. This is a total tangent that I don't have time to get into, but that you know, Wanted Dead or Alive was one of the first signposts to me that like I wanted to be on MTV, like I wanted to be a musician, and it was just the like private. The video was like private planes and being on stage, and right, the idea, right. um, you know, and, and maybe we'll do a part two at some time, and I'll tell you the the long story of I got to write a song with Bon Jovi. Um, and and got to be in presence of the man and you know and i had that very same thing where like being in the room with him and writing a song with him um i was never a guy who was gonna go i've seen a million faces and i've rocked them all right that was never gonna be i was more 
alternative Smiths. Like I saw some faces and I think they were giving, they were mean to me, right? Like it's, and I've had that same thought of like, I've seen a million faces and I rocked a couple, like, yeah, a couple, a couple seemed to rock. (laughs) He did something in the middle of writing some of it that really sort of exposed like, oh, right. You can do that. And, and I can't. Right. And he had this great perspective because it was a very Bon Jovi song that wound up on a Bon Jovi record. But he had just done a solo record. And he, he, of all, like, he, a, one of the hardest working people I've ever met. Like, it was this songwriting seminar and, uh, in, in the south of France. And everyone was supposed to write a song a day. And he'd get together with three different writers and write three a day. Like, he was just, he, he was just on it. He did something in the middle of writing the song that, that made it very clear that, like, He's, he's a different, he's a different thing than I am, but he had this perspective. He had just done a solo record. He's like, yeah, no one wants to hear that shit from me. I love arty stuff. I love this. I love that artist. I'm big fan of this, but no one wants to hear that from me. They want to hear wanted dead or alive. Right. And, and so he had pivoted back to that because he's like, I'm just going to give them what they want to hear, which is fun. Sorry to take three hours. Well, when, you know, when you don't talk to anyone about your music career for 20 years, you have a lot to say, I guess. Well, I'll, I'll be honest. I wouldn't have traded this for the world, man. And I really appreciate you talking and being so, so great. And man, I'm so glad and happy we connected. Well, it's my pleasure. Thank you for reaching out. It was really, really fun. I appreciate it. Make a scene this small-minded time